For those of you I have not met, my name is Ollie Lansdowne and I work alongside students here at All Souls. We're in a series looking at gods of this age, money, power, and today, sex. Before I go on, let me note two things. First, in talking about sex and sexual ethics today, I am going to be asking us to think a bit about the nature of sexual violence. If you're not emotionally or mentally prepared to think about that this lunchtime for whatever reason, please feel totally free to hop out from this service for today. You can always watch it back later on when you're ready. Second, I owe much of what I'm saying today to a journal article called The Beloved Icon by Onzi Carmel in the Scottish Journal of Theology, and you can find that online. Okay, let's get started. In opening up a discussion about sexual ethics, I reckon the conversation we'd normally expect, whether in church or in the workplace or at uni, would be one about who should or shouldn't do what with who. And a key principle for navigating that question of who should and shouldn't do what with who that has gained particular prominence in recent years is the principle of consent, which is a very, very, very positive step. Because consent is foundational to any healthy physical relationship. It is impossible to have a healthy physical relationship where only one participant has the power to stop it. Consent is fundamental. And if you are in a relationship in which only your own physical appetites have any bearing on what you do in that relationship you need to immediately stop and seek help. The principle of consent is embedded at the heart of the national conversation about how to navigate sexual ethics, and long may that continue. But it is worth noting, consent is not enough. It's not sufficient. It is impossible for sex to be ethical without consent, but it is still possible for sex to be problematic at least even if you have it. Partly because consent is not a trivial concept. As soon as we talk about the principle of consent, we need to be talking about things like capacity, coercion, and cultural context. But even more fundamentally, consent is not enough because even the explicit, empowered consent of another person cannot purify our own heart's desires. And it's out of the overflow of our own hearts that Jesus says we defile ourselves. It isn't what we do with our bodies that makes us unclean. It's what comes out of our hearts. So today, I want us to do something a little bit uncomfortable. I want to invite us to scrutinise the desires of our own hearts. I want us to go a step below the choices that we each make and consider the desires that move us to will those choices. Because sex isn't just about the activity of our bodies, it's about the desires of our hearts, and actually the orientation of our souls. This lunchtime I want to invite us to think about the place of desire in sex. What are the ethics of sexual desire? 1 Thessalonians 4 is one place to which we can go with that question. And these verses present us with an anatomy of the ethics of sexual desire, rooted 
in the immorality of lust. Jesus tells us that it is what comes out of our hearts that defiles us. And according to these verses, the specific defilement of sexual immorality comes out of a specifically lustful heart. The condition of the heart that leads to the defilement of sexual immorality is the passion of lust. And Paul draws that out for us by detailing what lustful sex is like. Firstly, lustful sex is exploitative. Look, if you can, at 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Lustful sex is exploitative. It takes advantage of other people and whoever they are, verse six, it does them wrong. Why? Because lust is the disease of a heart that desires to take advantage of another person for its own pleasure. It's the nature of lust to gratify itself by taking advantage of someone else to make another human being into a tool for its own gratification. So lustful sex is defiled because it is driven by a desire to exploit. You may only have exploited her in your heart, but it's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. It may have just been you in the bed with the internet, but lusting for someone via Wi-Fi doesn't cleanse your desire to exploit them. It may have been entirely consensual. It may even have been between you and your spouse. But the other person's consent cannot purify your heart's lustful desires, and neither can marriage vows. Sex driven by lust is always defiling, whoever it happens to be with, because lust desires to gratify itself by taking advantage of someone else. And it is just as wrong to desire to exploit your spouse for your own self-gratification as it is to exploit anyone else. Instrumentalizing anyone as a tool for your own gratification to gratify your own lust is always wrong because lustful sex is exploitative. Paul goes on, halfway through verse six. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. First, lustful sex is exploitative. And second, lustful sex is idolatrous. Lustful sex disregards the Lord because God did not call us to be impure, but to live 
holy lives. His instruction is for us to be sanctified and holy, not to follow our own lustful passions like the Gentiles do. But as soon as our hearts are filled with lust, with the desire to gratify ourselves by exploiting others, we have already made ourselves impure from the inside out. And we, when we make ourselves obedient to our own lustful passions, we disregard God's call to live a holy life, desiring self-gratification more highly than obedience to the Lord's instructions. Lustful sex makes someone else's body a vessel for my own self-worship and rejection of the Lord's instructions. Which means lustful sex is not only exploitative, it's also a profound act of idolatry. It's a rejection not only of a human being, verse 8, but of God himself. And it is, in that sense, a bitter reenactment of the fall of humanity through which all sin entered the world. Just like Adam and Eve, who saw that the fruit of the tree was desirable and pleasing to the eye and so took it against the Lord's explicit instructions, lustful sex exploitatively and idolatrously disregards the Lord's instructions, choosing instead to gratify the desires of the heart and to make another person a vessel for self-worship. Lustful sex is a reenactment of the pride and lust of the fall. And ever since the fall, sex has therefore been profoundly compromised by lust and pride. Which leaves us with a really big question. Is it actually possible to salvage sex from our own compromised desires? Like, is it actually possible to salvage sex from lust and pride? Because it is plausible that all sex is irretrievably compromised. It is possible that for fallen humanity, all sex is fatally compromised by lust and pride, and all sex is only ever exploitative, idolatrous self-worship. Looking around at the 21st century West, and actually at the whole history of human sexual violence, I want to suggest that we can't easily ignore that possibility. We could talk about internet porn. A 2010 study of 50 of the most popular porn films on the internet found that 88% of them contained physical violence. Internet porn is a multi-trillion dollar industry that explicitly profits from the consumption of sexual exploitation, especially of women and children. But we could also talk about sex and nudity in film. At the 2013 Oscars, Seth MacFarlane sang a song called We Saw Your Boobs, in which he listed 16 actresses, many of them in attendance that evening, together with the films in which they'd appeared topless. It was a song of self-worship, and it made explicit the self-gratification that comes from consuming women's bodies on film with zero repercussions. We could talk about workplace affairs. 
the boss sleeping with the secretary is a well-worn trope. But let's not be naive. The power dynamics involved in that relationship aren't a bug, they're a feature. It is way easier to take advantage of someone that you employ. We could talk about teenage rape culture. In March, the Sunday Times published an open letter accusing Dulwich College of being a, quote, breeding ground for sexual predators, listing over a hundred anonymous accounts of sexual assault and harassment linked to the school. You don't get tragedies like that unless the culture in which teenagers are being raised is steeped in lust and pride. And these forms of violence don't only exist amongst teenagers. It took until 1991 before marital rape was made illegal in this country. And a recent survey found that rates of domestic violence amongst Anglicans in Australia are, tragically, actually higher than amongst the general population. Can I say at that point that if that's a present reality for you, please seek help. You can find some ways to get help at allsouls.org forward slash safeguarding. With all of that context in mind, it is possible that for fallen humanity, all sexual desire is only ever exploitative, idolatrous self-worship. So, is it possible to salvage sex from lust and pride? Look again at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. And then verse 8. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. The answer to the passionate lust, diseasing human sexual desire, according to these verses, is to know God's will, to be obedient to the instruction of his Holy Spirit, and by controlling your body in a way that is holy. It is to worship God by subduing the desires of the flesh in obedience to the will of the Spirit. And friends, it is hard. You will need help and support from others. All of us will. It will probably feel like death. But friends, it is so radiantly worth it because it is God's good will for you to live a holy life. And it is the future that has been secured for you by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Lustful sex reenacts the fall, and the answer to lustful sex is to live in such a way as to reenact the gospel. It is to live out Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and Pentecost in your sex life, dying to the flesh and living in the power of the Spirit, being crucified with Christ and being raised in the power of His Holy Spirit to live in obedience to the Spirit's instruction. The answer to lust is to subdue your own will to God's will 
for your life. And his will for you, verse 3, is your sanctification. It is that you devote your body to the Lord, worshipping the Lord in the beauty of self-control. It is that each day of your life is charged with holiness. Lustful sex reenacts the fall, exploits others to worship the self, but sex that reenacts the gospel treats the human body not as a vessel for self-worship, but as a temple of his Holy Spirit. And it is radiant. Instead of worshipping the self, sex that reenacts the gospel puts lust and pride to death. Instead of exploiting the other person, sex that reenacts the gospel honours the image of God in the body of the beloved. Instead of disregarding the Lord, sex that reenacts the gospel is devoted to the Lord through devotion to the other person. And it isn't just sex through which we're called to reenact the gospel. It's through celibacy as well. Instead of worshipping the self, celibacy that reenacts the gospel puts lust and pride to death. Instead of exploiting other people, celibacy that reenacts the gospel honours others as those who bear God's image and whose dignity shouldn't even be violated in the imagination. Instead of disregarding the Lord, celibacy that reenacts the gospel is devoted to the Lord through the holiness and beauty of a self-controlled life. It is charged with holiness because all sex is an act of worship and all celibacy is too. The question isn't whether you are worshipping or not, but who you are worshipping. For fallen humanity, sex is profoundly compromised by lust and pride. Lustful sex reenacts the self-worship of the fall. And the answer to lustful sex is to reenact the gospel, devoting yourself and your body to God, worshipping him in sex and in celibacy. And as I finish, if that feels impossible, remember this. The God to whom you have devoted yourself and your body has already devoted himself to you. The gospel you are reenacting is the same gospel through which your heart has been washed white as snow. And the holy life to which God has called you is the very same life that he has promised you. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And the spirit that lives within you will complete what he has started. Let me pray for us as I close. Almighty God, who alone can order the unruly wills and affections of sinful humanity, grant to us, your people, that we may love the things that you command and desire the things that you promise, that among the many changes of this world our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through jesus christ our lord amen